As I was returning from the conference in Louisville just a couple of weeks ago, just west of Nashville, I could see the dark clouds were looming on the horizon. It was a day very much unlike this morning. And uh, car, cars coming towards me had their headlights on, so I knew it was going to get nasty. I knew I was going to enter into, uh, drive into the mess. And as we return to Exodus this morning, Exodus 7 particularly, uh, we know that the storm is coming. Uh, it's going to get nasty. Say, what are you talking about? What storm? This is the storm of God's judgment and power over the gods of the Egyptians. Uh, Gods whom the Egyptians would really look to uh, Pharaoh as representing and speaking for. Uh, The word of Pharaoh was the divine word of the people. Much like the, the Caesars in Rome, beginning with Augustus at the turn of the millennium. He was the exalted. His words were the words of God. But these gods are gods with no real power. They will be shown as gods to be no gods at all by the outstretched arm of Yahweh, the one who is. So the storm is brewing. There's a supernatural battle between Yahweh and the forces of evil here. And this, uh, the stage is being set. And we're going to see this played out in the struggle between Moses and Pharaoh. So we're back in Exodus 7. We'll read verses 8 through 13 this morning. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants. And it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word to us, that You would condescend in such a way that we could hear, that we could understand, that we could apply Your Word to our lives. Lord, it is Your Word that feeds us. We know we do not live on bread alone, but by the the very Word that proceeds from You, the mouth of our God. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, it is Your Word, Lord, that stands forever. Plant it firmly in our hearts and in our minds, on this morning. Lord, guide us in our understanding. Uh, be glorified. The preaching of Your Word make us attentive now, we ask. Uh, help us, Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a well-known satire by Jonathan Swift about an Englishman whose name was Gulliver. And uh, Gulliver is out, uh, he's a captain on a ship, and he's shipwrecked, and he finds himself in a very strange land among strange little people. And as soon as he opens his eyes, they're shooting at him with little arrows. And he wonders, well, what's happening here? And finally they take Gulliver in and uh, they grow more hospitable uh, towards him. Uh, he becomes their friend. And, uh, but then after a while, he's convicted of treason and has to escape this land and goes into another strange land and finds a boat and fixes up the boat and sails back to England. Uh, it's just one of... Several voyages where Gulliver 
ends up among a strange people in a strange land. And as you might expect, this novel has been put to film over the years. The mid-90s version of the film, uh, Gulliver has returned to England and is forced into a mental hospital. And the, the administrators are standing around him and they're trying to determine if he should be released or if he should you know, go back to his cell for the year for reevaluation. And uh, one of them says, Gulliver, you're clearly suffering from a disease of the mind. The journey never really happened except in your own head. All we ask is that you acknowledge this. When you've done that, then you may leave. What do you say? And much to the dismay of his wife, uh, Gulliver responds, every single thing I've told you is the truth. It happened to me. Why do you persist? You say you saw these things that no one else has ever seen, these fantastical places. Have you proof? Another administrator barks in. The answer is no. He has no proof. And that question, have you proof, is an important question in our text. It's not really stated as a question from Pharaoh to Moses, but more like a command. Prove it, Moses. Show me something from this God that you say appeared to you and is now expecting things of me. Now, to some degree, we can understand this type of statement, this type of question. To an extent, you know, if Moses is like God to Pharaoh, which you read in verse 1 of chapter 7, then there must be some power, there must be some proof of this. As the gods of, of Egypt exercised their power through Pharaoh. But I only say that to some degree, to some extent, because this demand for proof is coming from a very proud and arrogant heart from a self-acclaimed God to the Creator God of Israel. Who can stand before Him? Who can make these type of demands of the Creator God? Who can question His intentions? Recall how God answered Job from the wind after all His cries and the ponderings of His friends. So where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Do you know the ordinance of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Who will contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. That's the response. Yet here's Pharaoh in this very temporal throne of his saying to this God, prove it. Comes from a heart of rebellion against God. He's enslaved God's chosen people. He's treated them unjustly. He does not bow the knee to the glory of God. So these battle lines are drawn. Storm is coming. So how does the Lord answer Pharaoh's demand here? It's the only time that Pharaoh's going to ask for a sign from Moses, the God he speaks for. What's he going to show him? And I think it's important for us to see, first of all, is that Moses and Aaron submit to the will of God in order to see the witness of God and His warning through this interaction. So that's how we're going to look at this. The will of God, the witness of God, and warning of God in this text. This is not the first time that Moses and Aaron have been in front of Pharaoh. It's actually the second time. If you remember what happened that that first round, 
earlier in chapter 5. It didn't go so well. Moses shares a few things with Pharaoh that weren't exactly what the Lord told him to share. Pharaoh tells Moses and Aaron to go back to work. They're wasting his time. Gives more work to the people because of this. Obviously, they have too much time on their hands, daydreaming about leaving Egypt, worshiping their God. So Moses cries out, Lord, why did you ever send me? See, Moses has taken a lot of convincing, not to mention a lot of patience on the part of the Lord uh, to do this. So in Moses' mind, this was proof that it was a bad idea. It's time for deliverance plan B. But Yahweh doesn't work plan B. He doesn't have them or need them. He assures Moses, he assures the people in chapter 6, then in verse 29, tells Moses again, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt all that I say to you. Now in chapter 7, verse 6, and again in verse 10, it reads like this has finally sunk in for Moses. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. No more trying to rationalize with Pharaoh or gain his sympathy in some way. No beating around the bush here. He's not trying to get cute or help God a little bit with his knowledge of the Egyptian court. Moses does exactly what God tells him to do. And that's a big deal. Going from quite resistant to the call of God to willful obedience to the Lord's command. So he and Aaron are submitting to the Lord, learning quite quickly that the Lord will equip them for this task. He'll provide all that they need to stand before Pharaoh. But they must submit to his will in obedience. See, when you and I submit to the Lord, He will provide what it is we need. He will equip us and enable us to do what He's asked us to do, as He's done in the lives of faithful servants for generations. See, all Moses and Aaron had were their staffs. Or maybe it was just Moses' staff, and He gave it to Aaron. We're not sure. It really doesn't matter. It was the staff of God before Pharaoh. His tool in their hands, as common of a tool as it was. So let's not underestimate the tools God gives us or His ability to use those tools when we walk in obedience to Him. You know, I think we all, have, we all have free access to the living Word of God. Uh, the very sword of the Spirit. A Word that not only guards our hearts, but instructs us and what, what being children of God, what it looks like to be image bearers. The very Word itself shapes us, and yet how easily we set it aside. Say, well, I don't have time for that right now. I'll get to it later. Maybe we think we know what it says. But do we really? We spent that time. We've really hidden the Word of God in our hearts. And I think, how much of the Scriptures do we have memorized? How little of the scriptures do we have memorized? There's no better tool for walking in obedience than to be able to recall the scriptures in that moment, in that moment of temptation or a few-minute conversation. So in general, we grossly underestimate the power of God's Word in our lives and the lives of others. And I want to differentiate a little bit here between the means of grace that God has given us through His Word and the sacrament and 
prayer and so forth, and how he, he graciously works through the, the resources and tools which are as diverse as the number of people sitting here. The Lord has been preparing Moses all his life to stand before Pharaoh. He's been preparing Aaron to speak. We can see how he prepared the Apostle Paul to bring the gospel to the nations. How has he prepared you to serve in the role that you fill right now? Could be your education. Maybe a certain skill set that he's given you. A family experience that you've had. Even a physical resource that you've purchased or he's provided as a gift. God will often use such things as tools in his hands when we walk in obedience. Or How might he be preparing you to fill a role that you never really had on the radar. I mean, here's Moses again. As you listen to the Lord's instruction, dwell on His promises, is He nudging your heart in a particular direction? Are you seeing the affirmation from others in this? And Don't, don't be afraid, but don't be surprised either if He provides the tools you need when you step in that direction. So as Moses and Aaron submit to the will of God, we see the witness of God here before Pharaoh. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. It's the same sign that God gave Moses, the same sign that he performed before the leaders of Israel. Now he uses that before Pharaoh. And Moses and Aaron are not sorcerers, they're not magicians. When Aaron throws down this staff, an actual piece of wood turns into a serpent, an animal. You'd say, well, why the serpent? We've mentioned this a little bit before. Uh, but the snake was greatly feared among the Egyptians, but also worshipped at the same time. It was a symbol of power and authority and an ability to terrorize your enemies. I learned that in the region where many of the Israelites would have been living in that time, that Nile Delta, that there was a temple built in honor of the god Wajit. I think that's how you say that. Uh, the snake goddess. And she's represented in all the, the hieroglyphics that we see of a cobra. We see the crown of the pharaohs with that cobra out in front. It's a symbol of sovereignty and authority. So by showing this miracle, we see a direct attack, not only on the authority of Pharaoh, but on this entire belief system that the Egyptians have. And Pharaoh calls in his magician sorcerers. It says they do the same thing by their secret arts. Now there's, there's some obvious questions that come from this. Do they have the same power as God? Has, God, has Yahweh met his match here? Maybe it's just a low-grade miracle that others could work. Um, there's plenty of discussion on whether this is a supernatural, demonic activity or whether these guys are just very well-practiced magicians, illusionists. Um, and this is something the Egyptians were very well-known for. They still are. Uh, their ability to charm and convince that they have some supernatural power. 2 Timothy 3, Paul mentions uh, two men, uh, Yannis and Yambres, who have 
may very well have been in this category as charmers, deceivers, um, using this trickery to claim supernatural activity. And we don't know if this is the case. Um, you know, there is snakes in that area, there, there's a nerve in the back of their neck that it could be squeezed just right and the, the snake would go stiff and look a lot like a staff. And if it were thrown on the ground, then it would start wiggling again. Um, I went back and forth on this a little bit because of the unique word we have here in verse 11, that secret arts. Uh, and what God says is to be done with the, the magician and the sorcerer among his people. Uh, we can't, can't overlook this. Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 18, the sorcerers and the charmers, the median, there's, they're an abomination to the Lord. They're to be killed. Much later in Malachi, we read the Lord will judge those who swear falsely and include sorcerers uh, among them. Uh, the sorcerers were burned in the lake of fire in Revelation 21. Acts 19, we learn that, that those under the conviction of the Spirit, it's been in Ephesus, under the, the conviction of the Spirit, they, they throw their magic books and books of spells into the fire. So this was incompatible with those who look to God and trust in Him and His power. So I decided to call an expert. I called Scott Davis. Um, some of you know Scott. He's preached here many times. Scott's a pastor at Hope in Hot Springs. But he's also an exceptional musician. I magician. Um, maybe a musician too, but a magician. And I've not actually seen one of Scott's shows. But apparently he's very, very good. And I did a little snooping. We're talking opening for Jay Leno and regular show on Vegas good. Um, I told him I need a deck of cards signed just so I knew, you know, if uh, somebody asked me. But he's got DVDs out and how to market this and so forth. So I said, okay, Scott, what's going on here? Are these guys just doing what you do? What's different? And uh, long conversation to summarize, he said, this is just really good deception. Um, people believe it all the time. Um, and the secret art is that people just, it's secret because, well, it's secret. Nobody knows how it's done. It's a mystery. Um, now, Scott is not using spells and incantations or, or invoking some other authority in his magic. We know it's an illusion from the very beginning, but our brains still believe it. Um, and that, that's the majority consensus here and kind of the natural explanation for what's happening. But that also means that the waters of the Nile to blood and bringing frogs would also have to be explained by manipulation and illusion until um, we get to those little insects, the gnats, which we'll talk about next week. And they, they can't reproduce those things. They say it's the finger of God, um, different from anything that they could conjure up. And maybe that, maybe that takes us to the conclusion that now they recognize God's work as the real deal and not just a really good trick. They acknowledge where the power is coming from. But at the end of the day, we can't say for certain whether this is a really good illusion or demonic power. Um, Satan can keep folks bound and deceived through some pretty dark means. Um, I, I think of Saul, when he appeals to that medium we read about in Samuel. And that medium draws up the spirit of Samuel. or The wicked king Manasseh who used 
omens and mediums and necromancers in the Old Testament. We know that the world we live in is, is not just what we perceive with our senses. Part of God's created reality includes a supernatural, that which is supernatural, to us. You know, the church in other parts of the world, they don't have near the problem with this as we do. Uh, for lots of reasons we can't go into as a church in the West. But, but whether it's a great illusion or demonic activity, we can say with certainty it was no match for the power of God. Miracle of God versus manipulation of man or deception of evil, the miracle wins. Aaron's serpent devoured these other snakes. He did so quickly. There's no match for the power of God. Think of how this, how this would have impacted the Egyptians. For there, in that culture, if something was swallowed up, that, that which was doing the swallowing assumed all of the power and the authority of that thing that was being swallowed. So now all power belongs to this God. Not only is He God of Israel, but He has the authority and power over all the gods of Egypt. So a couple of things we can take away here before the, the warning to us. I think the first, that the power of evil and deception is very real. It's a very real power. Uh, under the sovereign rule of God, He may permit demonic activity to hold power, have sway over its worshipers. We also know that this power is limited to what God allows. Job is an excellent example of this. Satan could do nothing to the Lord's servant without permission. He's on a leash. He cannot re- resist the power of God. He can't try and resist the power of God. What he does, he tries to imitate it, twist it. We read in 2 Thessalonians 2, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Pharaoh saw exactly what he wanted to see from his magicians. This is the truth he loved. I mean, Satan is a con artist. Spiritual forces of evil under his rule, they, they manipulate, give, give a false imitation of what is true. Uh, some of the best examples of this I can think of, uh, the writing of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, Screwtape is a senior demon writing to a more novice demon named Wormwood. And, uh, there's a, a young man that they're trying to influence who's shown some interest in the things of God, who is referred to as the enemy in this book. I'll give you just a snippet here. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. Even when the little group exists for the enemy's own purposes, this remains true. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Provided that meetings, Pamphlets, policies, movements, causes, and crusades matter more to him than prayers, sacraments, and charity. He is ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. I could show you a pretty cageful down here. You hear the falsehood? Twisting? 
take any good thing, any good cause, and make it the thing, the cause, the only thing. And Satan has you in his clutches. The attacks of Satan are real, they're sneaky. But there's a limit to his abilities. When you, when you feel the, the oppression of evil, those spiritual attacks come. Cling to the promises of God. He will never leave you or forsake you. The promise that there is nothing that can separate you from his love. That Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. There's nothing more satisfying and fulfilling than to walk in obedience to him. Because your life is hidden with Christ. Keep reminding yourself of those things. Another thing we can see here is that God will go after what it is that may keep us from Him. Or keep us from drawing closer to Him. I mean, The, the serpent was, was the authority and the power for Pharaoh and the Lord swallowed it up. The Lord will swallow up our idols. He may do this slowly and gently or maybe not so much. All in His wisdom. Do we struggle with power and control? He'll show us our weakness. Money? Is that our thing? Is that we need the most? He may strip away financial security. Reputation? He may allow some smudges to show us where our real reputation must be as children of God. The Spirit will confront the gods that we worship. And think what a grace this is. This is the grace of God to us. That he doesn't just leave us in deception, but continues His work. Praise Him for this. So Pharaoh is convinced uh, that this display here is nothing, nothing out of the ordinary, nothing special. He's unmoved by it. Probably comforts himself thinking, yeah, you know, these, these guys are pretty good at trickery. Um, but his heart is hard, stubborn, just as the Lord said it would be under His sovereign hands. See, the Lord knows the mind of Pharaoh. He knows his heart. He knows everything. All according to His unchanging character. But a hardened heart, a stubborn heart, is not easily moved. This will become more and more clear as the Lord ramps up the signs of His sovereignty and power. We'll read in a couple of chapters that the Lord raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, to exalt his name, to show that he alone is God. He is to be feared and worshipped above all nations. By all nations. So that's the appropriate response all the time. That's the appropriate response for Pharaoh. Even as the Lord confirms him in his depravity here. The Lord starts small with this sign. He doesn't let Pharaoh have it all at once. I think it shows his mercy. Mercy to this king, to the Egyptians. Again, the great mystery of God's sovereignty and the full responsibility we have to bow the knee and worship. Obedience. Pharaoh has witnessed the power of God. He's without excuse, but he refuses to turn. So it's not for lack of evidence that the hardened heart refuses to turn to the Lord. Refuses to receive His grace. This is not an, a matter of the mind. This is not an intellectual problem for those living in the kingdom of darkness. A very well-educated atheist will acknowledge this. Holly is one example. She claimed Christianity was a blemish on modern civilization. 
And she mocked the faith, she mocked the intelligence and the character of other Christians until she started asking some honest questions. She came to the conclusion that her naturalistic worldview was inadequate to explain the nature of reality in a coherent way. And she was exposed to some Christian teachings and came under a mentor. She went from denying the existence of God to committing her life to Christ. Why? Here's, here's what she said. Paul's forthright declaration is based on the historical witnessed events of Christ's death and resurrection. So really, it doesn't matter whether we like Christianity or not, kind of speaking from that atheist position. What matters is that it's true. It's not for lack of evidence. God has given the, the beauty of His creation. He's given His Word. He's given the proclamation, the love of, of the church. However fractured it may be, but this is a heart problem. A spiritual condition that's only changed through the working of another miracle. Glenn prayed over this earlier in our service. A miracle worked by the Spirit of God in the heart. Changing it from a heart of stone, unresponsive to a heart of flesh that can now see and acknowledge the truth of God. Receive His grace in Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, then that miracle has been done in you. Give praise to God for this. For His grace. When you wanted nothing to do with Him, He determined to change your heart. To give you life out of death. which is the only place that sin takes us. If you've not looked to Christ as both Savior and Lord, and, and that lordship means continual surrender of every part of your life, then what does God have to do for you to listen? Pharaoh wouldn't listen. He was convinced in his own heart that he called the shots. He didn't need a counsel from some other God. He was accountable to no higher authority than himself. And that takes us right back to the heart of idolatry. So we can go through the motions. We can give Christ the nod, maybe for an hour, hour and a half on a Sunday morning, while fighting for our control at, at every turn. And just think about the name of God and how that name crosses your lips, the name of Christ. Is it in worship, submission to His authority? Or is it merely swearing by His authority as a grasp for our own control? Heed the warning of God, the sign that He gives. Gulliver was actually telling the truth, but no one believed him. And so the keepers in the hospital, they, they, they came, they're ready to take him back to his cell, and then the doors in the back open, and Gulliver's son comes in holding a little box. The administrators say, go, go sit down by your mom, but he keeps walking to the front and sets the box on the table and opens the lid, and a little tiny sheep walks out, you know, across the table. They're astonished. Do you know what this means? Gulliver scoops up his son, now a free man. In John chapter 2, the Jewish leaders ask Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What authority do you have? 
Why should we listen? And Jesus responds, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. He's not talking about large blocks of stone. He's talking about his body and the resurrection that was to come. Jesus walked out of the tomb. Proof. Proof of the living power of God. The power over sin and the grave. The power to to restore us to our Creator. The power to recreate us from the inside out. So when the human heart says, prove it, when we in our idolatry and our belief say, Lord, prove it. Show me a sign that you're worth listening to. Show me a sign that you're worth obeying. That your love really is better than everything I see. God says, I have. I have sent my one and only Son. Whoever believes in Him, whoever looks to Him in faith, will have eternal life. Remember just two verses before Jesus says those very familiar words in John 3. He recalls for Nicodemus the judgment upon God's people in the wilderness. And they could be saved only by looking at the serpent. Whoever looked in faith would be saved. Pharaoh had looked at the serpent, but he doesn't see. Now we look to Christ for life. We have all the proof that we need. Death is swallowed up in victory. My friends, this life does not disappoint. We have a living hope. We have an eternal inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, Our lives are hidden with Christ. Let's give Him all the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that You have swallowed up death. We have full victory over the grave. And as we look to You in faith, we shall be saved. Lord, fix our eyes. Fix our eyes on our King. Fix our eyes on the risen Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. In His name we pray. Amen.